I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in some facet of human consciousness. This week, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Uriah Kriegel. Dr. Kriegel is a research director at the Jeanne Nicod Institute in Paris, where he heads the Consciousness and Self team. He works mostly in philosophy of mind and metaphysics, but is also interested in cognitive science, metaethics, epistemology, early analytic philosophy, and a number of other research areas. He received his Ph.D. from Brown University in 2003, whereupon he started teaching at the wonderful philosophy department at the University of Arizona, where he was tenured in 2010. He then moved to Nakad in 2012. It was a fascinating conversation we had with Dr. Kriegel. We touched on topics from the awareness principle to eating one's brain to learn what chocolate tastes like, hint, you can't do that, to Arizona's connection with asthma, and to being, quote, nobody's dog. Go buy his books on Amazon, Subjective Consciousness as Self-Representational Theory, The Varieties of Consciousness, The Sources of Intentionality, and many more. So please enjoy Dr. Uriah Kriegel. Obviously, you know, hopefully I'm right about this. You've got a lot of passion for understanding consciousness. So, I mean, where do you think, what do you think motivates you and, and where does the enthusiasm come from for you? So there's a short answer and a long answer to this question. The short answer that it just satisfies my curiosity mm-hmm. and satisfying my curiosity is the kind of thing that tends to generate in me, you know, sustainable long-term happiness. It, you know, if I buy a car, I'm like happy for a week, right. but I am, sadly I cannot afford to buy a new car every week. So right. uh, for a sustainable kind of, uh, long-term happiness uh yeah one of the things that work for me is just uh uh, satisfying my curiosity now that just raises the question of why is consciousness why am i curious specifically about consciousness right and here the main i'd say the two main there's a bunch of things but maybe the two main ones is i guess maybe take a step back um the two main ones are both related to a distinction that philosophers sometimes draw between two pictures that we have of the world, the manifest image of the world and the scientific image of the world. Mm-hmm. So the manifest image of the world is just, you know, the world you see around you, uh, objects like tables and cars and rocks and trees and people and their shapes and colors and all the other properties that they have. And that's kind of the, the, the world we live in, so to speak. That's the manifest image of the world. And then there's the scientific image of the world, which says, you know, all there is is quarks and electrons and the quarks kind of congeal together to make protons and then the, the electrons orbit around them and that's an atom and all of these particles, they all kind of were generated 14 or 15 billion years ago in the Big Bang. And so that's a completely different image of the world, but mm-hmm. the assumption is the, the world is one. It's just two ways of homing in on it. And so the question is, how do you fit the manifest image and the scientific image into one coherent picture of reality? And I think consciousness generates a very distinctive challenge here because what are the options really for fitting something that shows up in the manifest image into the scientific image? 
when you have, uh, let's say, a car or a rock, what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, it's just it's just a huge collection of particles that for some reason hang together in some way. And this is how you find place in the scientific image for things like cars and rocks that show up in the manifest image. And another option, I guess, is to just take something from the manifest image and say, actually, it turns out it doesn't exist. So science has shown maybe there are no ghosts, there are no witches. Um, that's another option. So one option is reduce something from the manifest image to, to the scientific image. And the other option is eliminate something from the manifest image. And just both options seem really weird with consciousness. Right. To eliminate consciousness is to say that actually we're just robots who mistakenly believe that they are conscious. And that sounds kind of absurd. And the other option of saying, well, consciousness is just a bunch of particles, to, you know, working together in the brain. It's... Uh, I mean, it's an option, of course, but there seemed to be something tricky about the fact that the scientific image, the image of particles, is, is purely objective, whereas consciousness by its essence is subjective. Mm -hmm. You don't understand consciousness if you just study it objectively. So if I study your neurons as you eat chocolate, I, you know, I'm not, if I don't know what chocolate tastes like, just looking at the neurons firing in your brain doesn't tell me what chocolate, tasting chocolate feels like. And even if I eat your brain as you eat chocolate, it doesn't taste like chocolate, it just tastes like brains. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend this, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, well, it's, even a, it's that, a unique it's, perspective. <laughs> so, yeah, so. My point is, neither reduction nor elimination seems a really comfortable option. And then the third kind of lurking possibility is, well, actually, consciousness doesn't fit into the scientific world, the scientific worldview. It's just this kind of transcendental thing that, that cannot be understood uh, scientifically. And that's, uh, that's kind of romantic, but it's, it's, it's also hard to believe why of all natural phenomena, I mean, we know that consciousness is a natural phenomenon that has evolved at some point. And so, I mean, we know it's, it's, it's a good hypothesis to assume that this is so. Um, and so why would this particular phenomenon of all natural phenomena would be kind of unsuitable to be fitted into the scientific worldview? So all the options are bad. This is this is what makes consciousness very interesting to me. What what to do? What which of the th these three options should I uh, endorse? And then the other issue is when we talk about the manifest image of the world, manifest to what? Manifest to whom? It looks like manifest to consciousness. So consciousness is that to which the world manifests itself in the manifest image. And there's the question then what why why does the world the way it manifests itself to consciousness, why does it look so different from the world the way science describes it? And could it be that the structure of consciousness itself somehow imposes a certain structure on the the world as we experience it? And this is a whole other level of uh 
depth and difficulty that uh, I don't actually feel entirely um, ready to address, but I hope to before I die. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I can see how that all those would motivate you because it seems like uh, there's a lot of answers yet to be. I mean, a lot, a lot of answers yet to be found, and so that's what really yeah. drives you to, to find those answers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, you know, there's a kind of uh, this physics. There's a lot of questions that arise in physics too. Like we know that there are four fundamental forces in the universe. And three of them are explained well by quantum mechanics, but the fourth one isn't. And so what might there be underneath the level of quantum mechanics that might explain all four forces? This is this raises issues about string theory, etc. These are difficult questions, but scientists have a kind of a... They have a general paradigm that in methodology that they know how to pursue in search of answers. I feel like with the science of consciousness, we don't even have the paradigm to st- and the methodology to start studying the subjective aspect of consciousness. Right. All the objective correlates of consciousness, like brain activity and behavior, we, we know how to study. But the subjective experiential aspect of consciousness, we don't even know the how to go about it. Is that something that, that people in your field are pursuing as a, as a model to, to study? Yes, um, not everybody in philosophy is doing that, but a lot of people who do philosophy of consciousness are are, are motivated by these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, bewilderments, mm-hmm. I should say. Whereas, you know, cognitive scientists are more likely to just um, study the objective correlates of consciousness like the neural activity in the brain and behavioral sort of behavioral phenomena because they don't really know how to address these subjective aspects right okay so given all that where where do you land now on how you would or, or can you or would you even define what consciousness is So, there. So, I think of it as a kind of a two two step plan of attack. One is understand the nature of consciousness on its own terms, and then and then see how might it be fitted, if at all, into the scientific image, and so. The, the first part of just understanding the nature of consciousness, that's the thing I've worked on mostly. And the second thing, and so, and so we can talk about this in a second. The second thing about what, what the implications might be for the question of whether consciousness needs to be eliminated or reduced or just added as something that is transcendent to the scientific image. I uh, I started out being very convinced by the reduction option. Mm-hmm. This is ultimately all there is are particles. Consciousness obviously exists, so somehow consciousness must be must be a matter of particles. But the more as, as I age, 
the more distance I take from uh, from that early perspective, the, I, I'm only I only become less certain of what I should believe on this. So this mm. is kind of sadly, the more I reflect. The, the less progress I make, the more regress <laughs> uh, happens in my thinking on this second issue. Right. And what, and what about on the, the first issue? So, on the nature of consciousness, um, when it comes to describing the nature of consciousness, there are two kinds of tasks you can have in mind. One is to describe the different kinds of conscious experience we can have. Mm-hmm. You know, conscious experience of color, conscious experience of music, conscious awareness of abstract structures like math, stuff like that. This would be like one approach find the different kinds of experience we have and kind of map them out and map out all their interrelations. And the other approach, in a way the more fundamental task, is what is the nature of consciousness as such as it shows up in all these manifestations, as it shows up in the conscious awareness of color, in the conscious awareness of music, in the conscious awareness of abstract structures. What is common to all of these? And here, my own kind of uh, hunch that I've been pursuing in the last 15 to 20 years is that what's special about conscious awareness is that whenever you're consciously aware of something, you're also aware of your awareness of that Mm -hmm. thing. So right now, I'm looking at my dog, Julius, who's lying here uh, next to me, and I'm I'm, I'm both aware of Julius and aware of my awareness of Julius. And, and more than that, these two, these two awarenesses are actually not two. They're just the, the one thing that has these two facets, a kind of outward looking facet that presents the world and an inward looking facet that just presents itself. And this is what's, that's my view. This is what's special. This is the nature of consciousness that it is. It has this kind of reflexive awareness of itself at all times. Yeah. And that, and that kind of, I guess, leads me to another question when talking about awareness, because in reading through some of your stuff, the, the awareness of the awareness, uh, you know, I found interesting. And you've got this, you mentioned this awareness principle. You know, that a, the mental state is conscious only, and, and it kind of turns into algebra, you know, for me, but only if the, the subject is aware of the mental state. So is that something you can go a little bit more into? And then one thing, one comment I think I saw you make is that this notion is uh, kind of divides philosophers. And, and, and why, why would that be? Yeah, so I think Many, many philosophers think that consciousness involves typically and maybe even universally an awareness of the world around us. The bit that's tricky is, does it also involve awareness of itself? And this is what I call the awareness principle, the the principle that whenever you have any kind of conscious experience, 
you're aware of having it. You're not only aware of the world, you're also aware of your the, that very awareness of the world. And I, why is it so device, divisive? I think people who have held that all consciousness is reflexive, all consciousness involves awareness of itself, have tended to impute all kinds of very special properties on this kind of self-awareness, this reflexive awareness. Mm -hmm. For example, awareness, awareness of external objects like Julius here is, can, you can always be wrong about it. So maybe I'm hallucinating, maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe I'm in the matrix and Julius doesn't even exist. All these are possibilities. Right. It's not very likely, but it's not something that I can rule out from the inside just by consulting my own experience. Right. But the awareness that I have of my own awareness of Julius, so my awareness of my visual experience of Julius, that awareness, uh, there's, there's a feeling that awareness of yourself is not as open to error as awareness of things other than oneself. So, for example, I guess you can make mistakes. You can be aware of yourself as generous when, in fact, you're not all that generous. That's, mm -hmm. that's definitely, <laughs> definitely <laughs> something that happens. But there's also limitations on this. So you cannot really aware, be aware of yourself as existing when, in fact, you don't exist. That's something that um, the uh, 17th century uh, philosopher Descartes had in mind when he said, I think, therefore I am. Right. It's, it's like as soon as you think you are aware of your thought and it, you can't not really exist. And even think of something like suppose you feel sad or you are aware of yourself as being sad. And someone tells you, actually, you're not sad, you're happy. It's just that we put you in a really weird kind of matrix that, you know, in the regular matrix from the movie, you have all kinds of awareness of the external world that doesn't correspond at all to how the external world is. Here, it's your, you have awareness of your own experience in this new kind of matrix that doesn't correspond at all to your experience. This is what this guy is telling you. Right. This guy is telling you, you are aware of yourself as sad, but in fact, you're happy. And right. I know this because I control the matrix. And here, I feel like you're just not going to accept this. You say, if I'm aware of myself as sad, well, then that's all there is to being sad. Right. Being sad and being aware of myself as sad are, like I said, two facets of the same thing. And, it, and so this kind of weird awareness that cannot that cannot get things wrong that is not susceptible to matrix type worries this is the kind of thing that anchors the essential subjectivity of consciousness it it i feel like the guy who controls the matrix and is telling you that actually you're happy they are trying to study you only from the objective third person perspective but you actually understand yourself in a subjective kind of first person sort of way right and so as soon as you admit that there is this kind of inner awareness of your own awareness of the external world 
and that this one is kind of insulated from the external world and from messing with the external world in the matrix style ways then you say there's something essentially subjective that doesn't lend itself to objective scientific study and that's the bit that is divisive I think a lot of philosophers just don't want to believe in this thing because hmm. then that's that encourages encourages us to rule out the possibility of a scientific theory of consciousness and therefore a scientific theory of everything and if you're wedded to this idea that there should be a scientific theory of everything which is kind of what we have been wedded to since the uh, enlightenment right um then you don't want to hear of this uh, possibility and, and so I'm torn between these two things. I like this ideal of the enlightenment, of a scientific theory of everything, of human reason kind of uh, dominating nature by being able to understand it fully. And at the same time, this idea that I really believe that consciousness is reflexive and is always aware of itself, and that creates a subjectivity that's uh, it's really hard to see how it could be reducible. Yeah, I have a hard time getting away from that notion. It's uh, something I saw, you know, in, in watching one of David Chalmers, you know, videos. And he said, you know, I, I know that I'm aware of my awareness. I can't guarantee that, that you are aware of your awareness. Right. And, and that kind of separation, I, I think I'm, I'm with you. I would have a hard time pulling away from that, that notion. So, yeah. So, um, so you find this, this bit about awareness of awareness compelling yeah and now how how attracted are you to this ideal of the enlightenment that there should be a scientific theory of everything i don't know i i don't know enough about it to have to have a a good opinion of it um you know the the my background i'm more of a scientist you know my undergraduate degree was in computer engineering so i think i i tend to want to take theoretical information and turn it into practical applications the idea that there's a you know and and then you know in in those studies then you obviously you study relativity and you try to look for the grand unification theory so that that notion is in my head to look for that kind of a thing but i don't think i don't think i'm intellectually or emotionally tied to the concept i think if we if we went down a path and got there that would be really interesting and and then for me in, in looking at consciousness I think there would be a real power, potentially a real power in consciousness as part of that whole unified theory. But I don't know yeah, if I'm, so, I don't know enough about it to, to give you a good answer. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think this is what, this is what accounts for. Um, this issue of subjective, reflexive inner awareness being so divisive. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Mm. Okay, um, so you know, one thing that's that's interesting to me, at least, is is how it relates to to dreaming. And I think maybe I have questions later on about like that something doesn't exist unless you're aware of it. You know, a memory doesn't exist or an event or an experience doesn't exist unless you're aware of it. But, you know, the awareness principle and 
how it might relate to dreams because it seems like with dreams you know being being aware of something as as I read through your papers and talk to you feels almost like a uh, a binary digital type of experience you're either aware or you're not aware and it feels like in dreaming it's almost an analog awareness that you go in and out of awareness of that dream and that's why sometimes it's hard to recall certain aspects of the dream. Do you have any, any, any thoughts or opinions on consciousness and awareness, you know, reflexivity on, on the dreaming? Yeah, I, that's a really cool perspective that, uh, you're presenting here. I just first a comment on this analog digital thing, uh, with consciousness. I feel like consciousness I'm talking about now waking life consciousness is both an all or none thing and a uh, gradient magnitude. Mm-hmm. And ha- the, the reason, the way I think it works is, you, you know, these lights where you can dim it mm-hmm. or make it like weaker and weaker and weaker. Right. And then there's a point where you hear the click when it goes shut completely. Right. I feel like consciousness is like that. It there is an on-off kind of click, but then once you're on the on, there are degrees, and the degrees will actually be determined by how much of your awareness resources, so to speak, mm. are dedicated not to the stimuli you experience in the external world, but to your awareness of the stimuli. So the more you're aware of yourself as you go through life. The like the, the the stronger the degree of consciousness, that's that's when you're in the on mode, and then you can also be in the off mode. So that's what I feel like about waking life consciousness. About dreams, dreams it's very tricky. Yeah, some, so some people will tell you. Dreams are an exception to the awareness principle because in dreams you're aware of all kinds of stuff, basically the stuff that happens in the dream. Right. But you're not aware of yourself being aware of it. Hmm. And and that's why it doesn't show up in memory as reliably. Now, I personally don't buy this. I think you actually, while you're dreaming, you are aware of your awareness of the stuff that's hap- that's happening in the dream it's just that there's something about the functional architecture of our system that that breaks down the link between conscious awareness and memory so in waking life we are wired in such a way that whatever we consciously experience tends to stay in memory for a while. Uh, there are exceptions to this, I guess. Uh, you you know, sometimes you, you drive in Arizona there, you drive on the highway for five hours, and you have no idea what you've been seeing for the last two hours. Right. It's, it's just, it just didn't connect. Or maybe you play basketball and you're in the zone, and you kind of you have no idea what you were doing as uh, when you were playing. Right. Um, th- these are cases where memory gets disconnected a bit from conscious awareness in waking life. And I feel like in 
in dream experience, the structure of the experience is always reflexive, just like it is in waking life. It's just that it's not hooked up to short-term memory the way the way waking life conscious experience is. And so this is important because on the one hand, I think memory and consciousness clearly are very tightly connected because of this link uh, in uh, in waking life. But it's not an essential, memory is not an essential aspect of consciousness in the sense that we can imagine a creature that kind of lives from moment to moment and is aware of its surrounding and aware of itself. And it's conscious, it just has no memory, Hmm. and so it doesn't really build up any bigger narrative or any conception of itself. But it just, it's just there. Every, every moment it's just there. Uh, and, and conscious at that moment. Maybe some, maybe snails are like that, you know? Yeah, something it is like to be a goldfish. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe it's, uh, maybe a goldfish is a kind of thing like that. And so I feel like memory, the way we humans are wired up, memory and consciousness are really tied up together in waking life and are separated in dream life. Mm. Uh, But none of this is essential. The only thing that's essential to consciousness is that whenever it's aware of something, it's also aware of its own awareness of that thing. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. In, in, in describing this, you, something you said caught my ear. You said awareness resources. W- what are the awareness resources? Is that is that a, a physical thing? Is that... What is that? Yeah. So I should divide the options here to, first of all, understanding the expression awareness resources as just metaphorical okay that's one option and the other option is that it's literal and if it's literal i would think of it as primarily a kind of a mental resource but probably implemented physically in the brain um and but i'm not even sure i had it in mind in a literal sort of way it's just a good way for me to describe the fact that the following is a real phenomenon. Right. Suppose you are, I guess not in Arizona, but you drive over to California, you sit on the beach, you look at the sunset, and you can... So my, my view is that as you look at the sunset, you are both aware of the sunset and aware of your awareness of the the sunset mm-hmm. but i feel like you can be really immersed in the sunset in all its colors etc or you can take a more kind of introspective removed kind of attitude and be more aware of your experience of what you feel as you looking at the sunset and the things that you'll be aware of are are the same it's your it's the sunset itself and your experience of the sunset but there is still an experiential difference between being immersed in the sunset and being more removed from the sunset and more sort of concerned with yourself and where you are emotionally, etc. And what is this difference? I want to think about it as a difference in the distribution of awareness resources. In the first option, you give more, most of your resources to the sunset, 
and just a little bit of your awareness resources to your awareness of right. the sunset. And when you get into the more introspective mood, it flips. You give most of your awareness resources to your experience of the sunset and a little bit to the to the sunset itself. You never lose sight of the sunset entirely, and you also never lose sight of yourself entirely, but it, the the awareness resources can be distributed differently. Right. Yeah, perfect. Because I'm, I'm a very literal person, so when you said that, I went down the literal mental cul-de-sac and got stuck. It's, and it's, so I think that, that was very helpful and insightful. I'm not sure it's... If, I'm literally not sure if it was literal or metaphoric. Right. No, but yeah. that explanation was was, uh, was helpful, and, and I can sense it. You know, in the... You know the relationship, but you know, talking about dreaming, and and I do a lot of meditating, and mm-hmm. you know, there's, and I can feel me directing my awareness resources away from the the constant secretion of thoughts by my my by my brain, and right. so it's that- kind of like dreaming is kind of the same thing as how much awareness resources am I directing toward these activities that my brain is busy doing? Yeah. It's kind of a fascinating question. What spectrum of possibilities we have in terms of distributing awareness resources? Like I, I already said that the following seem to be two constraints. We cannot give zero awareness resources to the external world, and we cannot give zero awareness resources to our experience of the external world. And But might there be other kind of constraints on what distributions of resources there are. I feel like it's very hard for me to imagine a situation where they're really split down the middle, that you're aware of the world and aware of your awareness of the world equally. But some people have described to me certain types of meditation as aiming at exactly that kind of state, where you kind of evenly distribute it between awareness of the world and awareness of yourself. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I haven't thought of it in terms of, of that because it's, um, you know, with the meditation, you really try to drive, I would say, the resources to awareness of one's self. Yeah. So the other model here might be we have kind of a natural capacity to be introspective. Let's say, let's take just a toy model. In if I'm in a very introspective mood, I'll give 80% of my awareness resources to myself and only 20 to the external world. But can you push that further? Can you push that to 90%, 95%, 99%? And uh, you can think of meditation techniques, at least some of them, as trying to push sort of the barrier. Right. Hmm. Yeah, and that really becomes... Uh, a challenge in the act of meditating is to to kind of turn the knob on that the the balance of those two because it's so unnatural to us. Yeah. This is not uh, you know this is not what we were evolved to do. The caveman was not evolved to do that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um all right, so I guess moving on to intentionality, you know, I, I see a lot of your work has to do with intentionality as, as that relates to consciousness and you know I mean it's uh, 
something I don't. I honestly don't have a, a real grasp of. Can you kind of explain intentionality in, in a simple terms? Is that possible, and, and how it relates to consciousness? I think I can. Okay, awesome. Here's here's my here's my attempt. Uh, I, I well, a preface. The word intentionality is a terrible word because it's on the one hand it's used by philosophy as a kind of a technical term of art. But on the other hand, it's the kind of bad term of art that makes you feel like you know what... I mean, it sounds like we're talking about intending or doing something intentionally as opposed to accidentally. But actually, none of this has any relevance to the philosophical notion of intentionality, which just derives from the Latin word. And what the philosophical notion is, is just the fact that... Consciousness is always consciousness of something. It's always directed at something. So, for example, if someone tells you, I I want, and you ask them, well, what do you want? And they say, oh, nothing. I just want. It's, it's kind of weird. It sounds like they don't even understand what the word want means. Whenever you want, there's something that you want. Right. And likewise, if, if you say to someone, if someone says to you, I think, and you say, well, what do you think? And they say, nothing. I just think. Again, when, when you think, there's always, there's always an answer to the question, what do you think? What is the content of your thought? What is the content of your wanting? And so the idea of intentionality is the idea of this directedness at something that is being wanted, something that is being thought, something that is being hoped, something that is being regretted. Every kind of experience of this sort, it's always an exp- there's always a what. What is being regretted? What is being thought of? What is being wanted? What is being hoped for? This this is the, the notion of intentionality. And so, as you can see, it has nothing to do with the English word intention. Right. And that's, I think that's what creates a lot of the yeah. misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. So, sure did for me. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I just wanted to say the bit that it, that kind of the theory of consciousness is debating is whether this intentionality, this directedness, is something that's characteristic of all consciousness or just of most consciousness. Or maybe even of very little consciousness or no consciousness. I, I I feel like most philosophers are of the view that it either characterizes all consciousness or most consciousness. So some people say the experience of moods is not intentional. You can someone can tell you I'm depressed, and you ask them what are you depressed about, and they say nothing. I'm just depressed, and that's actually. That makes sense in the way the saying, answering that about thinking or wanting didn't make sense. And so some people say moods are examples of conscious experiences that are not directed at anything. They're just there. And other people say, ah, no, moods are directed. It's just that they are directed at everything or that they're directed at the world as a whole. And so there is this debate among philosophers on intentionality. Is it a universal characteristic of consciousness or 
is it just a characteristic of most conscious experiences that's actually that's one kind of debate and the other kind of debate is can there be any intentionality without consciousness hmm. could there be could, could there be a, a directedness or a whatness if for robots for example or for for creatures that are completely lacking consciousness these are the two kind of debates surrounding the link between consciousness and intentionality so on the first debate where do you stand on that I am torn <laughs> I'm sorry I keep giving you, giving you <laughs> no it's good it explores an answer you know it's good um, let's uh, let's say this I have 60% confidence in in the thesis that all consciousness is intentional or directed and 40% confidence that it's only most consciousness but not all consciousness. So I'm leaning towards saying even moods are intentional. Hmm. It's just that they are intentional in this very weird way that they're, they're directed but they they are directed at things in general without being directed at anything, any one thing in particular. Right. What about the idea that, that a robot could be intentional? So, here my inclination is to say no. Um, maybe it could be... Now, I'll keep it simple. I think if you, have, if you imagine a world... Imagine a world that's like exactly like our world with people like you and me, you know, talking over Skype about various issues in philosophy and going to work. And it's just so everything externally is the same. The only difference is there's nobody home. Nobody's conscious. Right. It's all it's all automata. Then I'd say there is no intentionality in that world. What about the instinct, the instinct to, for, you know, nourishment and, and shelter and security? Is there any intentionality in that kind of a motivation? Um, you're right that the kind of intelligent, intelligent guidance of behavior suggests that even a robot or an automaton needs to at least have a kind of rudimentary representation of the world um, in its little head. Right. Um, that's that's actually appealing to me. They need to have a representation of the world, but does that representation count as intentionality? Probably not. Uh, probably not. Though there's a danger here of falling into a merely verbal dispute about what we're going to call directedness. So it gets complicated. Uh, what's, the problem is here, it's, as you can see, this is not like you can go out there and do an experiment in a lab because these, this world that I just described, that's a, externally a duplicate of our world, but there's nobody home. That world doesn't exist right it's only imagination so it's hard to make experiments on your imagination though there is philosophers 
do do something they call thought experiments, right. which is basically that. But but it's it's much less solid your results, and so everything here gets very very uncertain very quickly. Right. Okay. Um, the the next thing, you know, on my list of questions here is I try I tried to to work my way through a little bit of the the neural correlates of consciousness. Um, and the thing that I got very curious about is, you know, what your general thoughts are on, you know, and I think you've already kind of filled in a bunch of this, but on, you know, monism, dualism, and what you see as any correlation between the, the neural components of the brain and, and consciousness itself. Yeah, so I think there's no doubt at this point that there is very tight and maybe perfect correlation between brain activity and conscious activity so whenever there is any kind of conscious activity some specific part of the brain is is active in a specific way and it will be different parts of the brain or they'll be active active in different ways depending on exactly what your conscious experience is and so the, the correlation there is very tight, and cognitive neuroscientists are working on, working on sort of mapping out. You can imagine by the year 3000, we will have this complete map of all possible conscious experiences to all possible brain activations. Is that too optimistic? Well, regardless, at some point, let's assume we have that. Right. And we still have an extra question, which is how to explain this correlation between, because correlations can be explained in different ways. One way you can explain the correlation between A and B is to say that A causes B. That's the most natural explanation usually. So why is there a correlation between the striking of matches and matches lighting up? Right. Well, because striking matches causes matches to light up. This is the most straightforward explanation but sometimes there is a kind of a backward causation where a correlates with b because b causes a so you're there in arizona arizona is the i believe the state in the union that has the most asthmatic in it mm -hmm. and so people people might think why why i mean is it that the dry air of Arizona causes people to be asthmatic? And the answer is not at all. It's the opposite. It's because the dry weather is so good for asthma that asthmatics move to Arizona. And this is a kind of a backward causation. Right. Um, so likewise, you can say the most natural explanation is to say the correlation between conscious activity and brain activity is based on the fact that the brain activity causes the conscious activity. But there's also the option that it's the conscious activity that causes the brain activity. And, and I should mention that there's also, well, there are actually several more options, but there is another, a third very prominent option, which is to say sometimes the explanation of the correlation is not at all causal. So when we're in school, we learn that scientists have discovered that water is H2O, Meaning they have discovered that water is identical to H2O, 
Now, what they saw is that there is a correlation between the presence of water and the presence of H2O. And it didn't seem, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to the scientists that the best explanation is that H2O causes water to be present. Rather, it's just H2O constitutes water. There's nothing more to water than H2O molecules being, you know, together. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's the best explanation of the correlation between A and B is that A just is B, that it's the same thing. And so that's, in the area of consciousness, that's what the reductive materialist likes. They like to say, consciousness is not caused by brain activity, it is brain activity. It's one and the same thing. And that's a kind of a reductive materialist view. And the view that says, no, they're not identical, it's rather that brain activity causes conscious activity. This is sometimes known as emergentism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the option that it's conscious activity that actually causes brain activity, I mean, you can think of that as a kind of a cosmic consciousness type view that sort of this first there's consciousness and it sort of it brings about everything else right philosophers tend to call this idealism hmm. yeah so so and now two questions arise question number one which of these possible explanations of the correlation between brain activity and conscious activity is the best one which one should we believe that's question number one question number two does science even have any hope of answering that first question? Is it a scientific question? I mean, one option is, of course, that science can only map out the correlations. But the ultimate explanation of why the correlations hold, that's a philosophical matter. That's mm-hmm. not a scientific matter. That's that's a very live option in my mind. But it's also a live option that, no, maybe, maybe in the year 3000, science will come up with something that actually distinguishes experimentally these different options and can actually settle the question of which is the most scientifically probable hypothesis about what explains the correlations between brain activity and conscious activity. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that, that would be interesting if we got to that point. I don't, I don't know if I really want us to. Yeah, I, uh, I hear you. I mean, kind of, uh, you want you want to get there because you want the knowledge, but uh, that knowledge could almost, right. you know, backfire. Yeah, it's a kind of. Although you know, I feel like in the nineteenth until the nineteenth century, most systems of morality assumed that morality uh, sort of comes from a higher authority. Is kind right. of handed to us basically by God, and that's where it gets its authority, and and the reason to be a good person, uh, to to do the right thing, is that you know this is what God wants us to do, and I feel like as as the Western world become became more and more secularized became more and more common through the 19th century to think of morality as more of a social system rather than a, mm-hmm. a gift from above. And, and a lot of, a lot of novelists got into this very kind of existentialist crisis about why, if that's the case, then why should we do the right thing? 
what reason is there for us to do to to be moral to be good persons and i don't feel like you know humanity has figured that out but i i imagine that a similar kind of crisis can hold, can happen with consciousness when we have a kind of a total theory of consciousness if and when i should say rather right. than when right yeah that that is interesting it, and it's something i you know i've looked at from a, a different perspective is almost that uh, determinist model that that we don't really have a choice most of us don't have a choice but to behave in, in a in a moral way no matter right. what we think as far as that goes but that's that's a different that's a different topic but that that is interesting in how that 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 plays here and in, in in the view of this yeah. and yeah yeah i mean the connection i think is that Morality and consciousness are two things that we, and free will, are actually three things that we are not sure how to fit into the scientific image. Yeah. They all show up in our sort of manifest conception of reality, but can they be accounted for in terms of a bunch of particles bumping against each other in the dark? Right. That's, uh, that's, so the, there is this something in common that all these challenges have. Yeah, they sure do. And maybe I should throw in some uh, a plug for the humanities here, because yes. you know there uh, is kind of a crunch for science and technology. I feel like these questions. I am very skeptical that that scientific experimental work can actually resolve any of these questions about morality, free will, consciousness, and can they be fitted into the scientific image? And and that's kind of what the humanities. That's that should hmm. be the mandate of the humanities. And I mean, if you think of the, our purpose, uh, you know, this is going to sound a bit, a, a bit wanky, but anyway, I like wanky. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is our purpose on earth? You might say, well, science and technology and the economy, let's, let's get Let's get uh, growth, economic growth. This is what it's all about. Uh, but there's a kind of someone might ask, well, all these growth uh, science, all these things, they have a, a certain kind of instrumental value. They are they are valuable in that they make something else possible, but they're not valuable in and of themselves. And so, what are the things that are valuable in and of themselves? Maybe uh, maybe happiness, maybe uh, uh, satisfying your curiosity, maybe some other things and the humanities have to address all these questions that are left off when you've you've taken science as far as it can right yeah it's an interesting notion because I, I spoke to somebody else who, who discussed the kind of the, the purpose in life um, question and you know he, he have like you can hope to have a, a, sci a scientific theory of the sublime uh, it's a, it's a fair question whether that's that's something that's in the cards for us right and so this is this is again this is why uh humanities may not be all that useless <laughs> right i like it <laughs> this is my plug for the humanities good i like that that they're not that useless <laughs> not altogether useless right all right well we're, we're coming up on the the end here and i would like to just throw out this last question it's kind of a, a selfish question that i like to get out there um, with all, you know, all the work you do and everything you, you look at, I always like, you know, like I mentioned, the engineer to me looks for the practical, you know, side of things. But do you think that 
one's own consciousness is something that can be purposely, maybe intentionally, or maybe I'm misusing that word at this point, but purposely explored, developed, exercised, you know, are there different layers of consciousness that can be learned, you know, how to access those layers? Or, you know, is this something that individuals can actually practice, you know, working within his or her own consciousness? Right. Um, I, I, first of all, I like, I like to think, I, I like that this is on the agenda, on your agenda here. Cause you know, we talk about physics and sort of studying the material world and then engineering being the, a kind of a discipline of how to put to use our knowledge of the material world. And then what, what engineering is to physics, it, medicine is to biology. So biology studies the, right. the, the living, the world of the, the realm of the living of life and medicine puts to use, to practical use this thing. And so if you believe that one day we will have this kind of very advanced theory of consciousness, like biology and physics, you might want that there will be also something that corresponds to engineering and medicine and is a matter of putting to practical use this knowledge in an attempt to sort of expand and get all kind of realize the potential, the maximal potential of consciousness. Right. Now, since we have very rudimentary knowledge of consciousness as opposed to physics and biology, Everything we say about this is very speculative at this point. Yeah. But uh, in a speculative vein, I'd say this. Julius here, who's sitting, you know, who's lying next to me, he he has his own conscious experience, his own conscious awareness, but it's much more limited than mine in all these different ways. He doesn't, so perceptually, he doesn't, he doesn't see as many colors as I see. Intellectually, he can understand things about uh, fetching and and eating, but and maybe the regularities of when the meals arrive. But he doesn't understand, you know, market economics or like even football. He doesn't. He cannot have football thoughts. Right. And and emotionally, I mean, he has some. Like sometimes he seems a, bit, a little down. And sometimes he's definitely afraid, mm-hmm. but I don't think he's capable of indignation or regret. And so in that respect, my spectrum of possible conscious experiences is much vaster than his. Right. And I think it would be kind of a hubris of us to imagine that we are nobody's dog, you know, that, that what we are capable of is everything, that there isn't, <laughs> there aren't emotions that, that can be had, but we are not having them. Right. And thoughts that can be had that we are not having and perceptual experiences that can be had but we are not having. I'm, uh, I, I'm sure that all this exists. There's all this uh, vast, there's this vast realm of possible experiences that we just aren't having. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say, the interesting question what are the things that we are not having that we nonetheless could have if we just did the right thing by, you mentioned exercising your, your mind, um, meditation, other techniques of concentration. 
and that's where it gets most speculative um you know we we know that we can combine experiences in new ways um you know when you take you take certain drugs you're gonna have certain experiences mm-hmm that like perceptual like visual or imaginative experiences that 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 you don't usually have and so but this is just combining new combinations of things that we already have so it's almost like there are the building blocks that we that we have and then these drugs help us combine them in new and surprising and and cool ways right but can we add new building blocks um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's of, interesting. There's a million dollar question. Can we add new building blocks? Yeah, and some people, you know, that have experienced those drugs, like, you know, famously Aldous Huxley, mm-hmm. you know, believe that there is there is access to additional building blocks, you know, under the influence right. of those. I don't know that they, they experience that once the drugs have worn off, but you know, he yeah. sure seemed to think that there was access to that. Um, without condoning the practice necessarily, from my experience, what the bits that are the bits that you are most um, fascinated with when you're tripping is a kind of certain experiences of deep insight like suddenly everything makes sense mm-hmm. or everything feels right and so i feel like these are basically illusory experience you have an experience as of having deep insight there's nothing actually that you eh, maybe that's not entirely true but but there's there's a kind of an experience of again delight of the sublime and experience of insight both of which are very very attractive to us because they tend to be accompanied by a certain euphoric hue right and so we might be just wanting this euphoric bit mm-hmm. um but yeah I suppose we have, we have, we have experienced the experience of insight and of delight at the sublime, most of us, at some point. But yeah, could it could it be a particularly intense variety of that? I guess as as long as we're just talking about a more intense variety of something that's already familiar, we're not talking about new building blocks, right? And so maybe the the real question is: Are the new experiential building blocks that can be achieved um, through certain techniques and or substances and or something else that I'm not thinking of? And I really don't know. Yeah, would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool, and that would be uh, you know within within the frame of of the conversation today it would be interesting to see you know if we are somebody's dog. And if we can learn, you know, learn learn those new building blocks, learn new tricks. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I've taken you a little bit past the time that that I promised. Did you have any other thoughts or, or comments that you want to get out there before we shut down? 
I don't think so. I think, uh, no. Okay. Well, thank you, by the way, yeah. for these questions. Well, you're They're welcome. And, and I, I'm, I'm just super grateful, Araya, that you came on here and uh, spent your time with us. 